Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. Do me a quick favor. If you like what you hear at Planet Microcap, please take two seconds and give us five stars on Spotify or Apple. This helps with the search engine so that more folks can also discover and engage with all things microcap stocks. Again, I'd like to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. I hope you had a wonderful uh, holiday break, peaceful, restful, the whole bit. We are back in action here at Planet Microcap, and uh, we got a lot to do before the end of the year. Next up, the Planet Microcap Showcase Vegas happening April 30th through May 2nd, 2024 at the Paris Hotel and Casino. Save that date. We are working our tails off behind the scenes here to put together the best program we can. Website is now live, and if you'd like to register par- to participate, please visit planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. My guest on the show today is Todd Wenning, founder and editor of the Flyover Stocks newsletter, which is now available on Substack. Last time we had Todd on the podcast, we talked about his investing philosophy as depicted in his diagram, outlining the overlapping synergies between management, moat, and price. He has since launched his newsletter, Flyover Stocks on Substack, and wanted to have him on to learn more about it, as well as discuss some of his first posts on there. Thank you again for tuning into the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my interview with Todd Wenning. Todd, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing, man? Great. Thanks for having me back on the show. Absolutely. It's great to have you. I mean, you know, I was looking back through the records. It's been... I mean, we're getting a little old here. I mean, both of us, we're getting, I'm, I'm getting some line. It's been six years, dude. A lot's Same happened. Same. Yeah, a little less hair, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, hence the hat, you know. Really, um, but uh, I do appreciate you coming back on and also talk about your latest venture. You know, last time we were, uh, we had you on the show, you were uh, over with uh, Sean Stanner Stockton over at, uh, I was forgetting, Intrinsic Invest. I, I just yeah. know him as the Intrinsic Investing. I know that's not yeah. the name of the fund. Yeah. But, Ensemble uh, Capital. Ensemble yeah. Capital. Thank you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> See, I know by the title of the pods, it's like Intrinsic Investing. It's like, that's right. Where um, and actually on that pod, it was really great because that was when you, I think, put out your investing philosophy diagram that went completely viral um, and deservedly so, talking about the overlapping synergies between management, moat, and price. And it seems that you're now taking that whole model and putting it to work publicly, at least for, for some. And then there's the premium service, of course, uh, with flyover stocks. So let's kind of start there. Tell us a little bit about flyover stocks and your new venture here. Yeah, so Flyover Stocks is sort of a, um, it was built upon this article series that I did for Morningstar back in 2013 to 2015, which was called Seeking Small Cap Moats. And where, for that, for that uh, article series, what I was focused on were companies that 
we didn't currently cover at Morningstar that weren't getting a lot of coverage because they were typically too small. And but they exhibited all the signs of a company with an economic moat. So I wanted to profile them and, and bring them up to light and start conversations with other investors uh, about that. And, you know, six, seven years later, people still ask me about that series. And so I thought, you know, it kind of resonated with people. Maybe that's something that's that's worth exploring. And so when I came up with the idea of flyover stocks, that, that's been primarily my focus is finding these companies that don't get a lot of play um, with the, the media and the, get a lot of attention. So, but they're great businesses nonetheless. And so I really wanted to bring them to light, uh, try to identify these great businesses, talk about them with other people so we can all learn together. Absolutely. You know, I was telling you just before we started recording how the idea of flyover stocks kind of sounds like the Lynchian, like another turn of phrase, right? Of boring companies, boring stocks, you know, flyover stocks. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, exactly what flyover stocks means, you know, beyond just the, you know, don't get the media attention, small cap, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's pretty broad and it was left that way intentionally. So I didn't limit myself too much in terms of what I could talk about. So for example, um, we profiled a company called Howden's Joinery, which I have since bought since I I published it a couple of weeks after we published it. I bought some shares. Um, and it's a UK company that does uh, mostly kitchens and kitchen remodels um, in the UK. And it's a great business model and you can read all about it on the site, but it's uh, not really well known in the US. And so it brought a lot of attention to the name and it became a very popular uh, article for, for people. A lot of American readers learned about it for the first time. And that's sort of exactly the type of opportunity I'm looking for are stocks that just don't people don't know about um, in one market or another. I mean, I have readers in other parts of the world who may not know a certain U.S. stock. So it depends on you know who the, who the, the, the eye of the beholder, right? So it's all depending on who, who's reading um, and, and what they might find novel or new. Um, but primarily, we're focused on U.S. stocks. And you know, there's some great U.S. businesses over the years. You know, the, some of the companies that I profiled in the Morningstar series, like Badger Meter and Winmark and Exponent all went on to be very, very successful companies and great investments. I wish I had bought them and <laughs> held them the whole time, uh, but they, they went on to do very well. And these were companies that most people hadn't thought of, or they have kind of funny names. Um, you know, Winmark does the play it against sports franchises and the Plato's closets and, you know, so the resale um, items that, you know, that uh, I guess, what were they called? Um, you know, trade-ins and um, people can get credit and buy stuff in the store and so on. So they're really interesting business models, great franchise, a lot of cash flow, and then how they reinvest that business or reinvest that cash flow was also very interesting. So, you know, these great businesses don't always get a lot of uh, interest from the media because they, they fly under the radar. They, they people fly over them. A lot of them are based in the Midwest where, or in, or far outside of big cities, more, more specifically, where analysts and investors are typically based and investors are, are not typically going to go out to Monette, Missouri to visit Jack Henry, you know, 20 years ago before it became what it is today. So those are the type of investments that I'm, I'm very interested in. You know, if it has a funny name, if it does something that's kind of mundane or, or boring, or it's not growing too fast, but it's got a really great niche um, moat, that's exactly the type of company that I'm looking for at Flyover Stocks. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, you came to the right place in microcap land here. I'm sure you're going to find a, a, 
a bevy, especially right now, you know, uh, when you think about some of the valuations you're seeing right now and anything under 300 million in market cap, that's for sure. Or maybe some that used to be small cap that are now under 300 million that, you know, all that, you know, speaking to the, I mean, you pretty much kind of went through the characteristics of what, what defines kind of a flyover stock. Can you quickly just, if we've missed anything, when you compare or when, when you think about what a, uh, your ideal flyover stock looks like, you know, let's relate that back to the Venn diagram that you put out, the famous Venn diagram that went viral, you know, because that really was also probably, I mean, that's your investing philosophy. That is the full on basis for everything that you look at. So clearly, you know, whatever it is that you're looking at as it pertains to the Venn diagram also is assuming it's a flyover stock. So is there anything we missed in terms of characteristics and having to do with the Venn diagram between management and and price? Sure. So those are the three sort of pillars. Those are the three circles in the Venn diagram or moat management and price. So we we can talk more about each of those specifically, but they all kind of play in together. Um, and when one is missing, I think that's a, a, a trap and something that you need to be, be very mindful of. Um, but I, I also look for great stewards of shareholder capital going back to, to management. So it's not just the moat. You also need a management team who is thoughtful about how they allocate capital. You, know, you could have a company with a moat, but if management's misallocating capital, that moat could erode a lot faster than it otherwise would have or destroy more value. And so you have to be cognizant of, of how management is, is managing the business. Because in my experience, most moats go bad because of what happens behind the castle walls. It's not, we hear a lot of stories about, you know, research and motion being disrupted by Apple and, and that's how it went down. But usually what happens is there's been some internal rot before that happens. And the external threat, the external um, aggressiveness that that destroys the business um, does it, it starts on the inside, and it had the wall had to corrode ahead of time. So those are situations I'm looking out for uh, when I'm thinking about management. Absolutely. Let Let's dig into this a little further because, like I said, we haven't had you on since 2017, and you know, there's a lot's happened. I mean, to say the least, in the last six years, but especially in the last two years. I mean, we I've taught I sound like a broken record, but it's really it's, it's the truth right now is that you know small micro caps. It's been especially in value, it's been just a complete bloodbath for the last two years. Um, and look at any measure, it is sorry. You know, hope things change. That's been that's been kind of the case. You know, when looking at the Venn diagram, and you're kind, and I'm seeing you know what's been mostly happening. I mean, you can make an argument that they're, you know, like if let's say there's an overlap of just two of them of like management and mode, is there is quality at any price between management and price? Is there avoiding turnaround traps? You know, moat and price, beware of quality. I mean, I think right now it's the turnaround traps. I mean, like almost everything is either in the middle of a turnaround or try, or like about to be in a turnaround. It seems like, I mean, especially in some of these culty micro from the news that we saw in the last two weeks, uh, I'm sure some people are listening, recording this on a Thursday, November 16th, 2023. It's been a quarter. <laughs> Usually Q3 has always been a quarter, but it's been a quarter. Let's be real. Yeah. Um, right. But I feel like the last two years, it's been more of a um, kind of quality at any price, beware of quality traps kind of, vibe over the last year. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think that there was certainly in 2021, more specifically, it felt yeah. like there were a lot of halo effects happening where the idea became just by a quality company, they'll earn their way into the premium. 
just buy it and hold it for the long term. And I think that in, in some ways, um, you know, it, it's like with any um, overshot or undershot, there's, there's a kernel of truth in that. And so I think that is true in general, but that can be taken to an extreme and companies with wide moats and great management team can be very inflated at times um, from a valuation standpoint. And when you have multiples in the 30, 40, 50 times earnings, you know, over the next 10, 20 years, it's more than likely that those multiples will begin to contract. And then the company has to not only grow extremely rapidly, uh, but it also has multiples up in order for you to generate very strong returns. Otherwise, the earnings growth will be offset by the multiple contraction. And then your your returns aren't as good as they would have been had you bought the stock at, say, 15 PE or something like that. So I think there are times in the market cycle where moats get overvalued, and then you have to be uh, very, very cautious about that. And I'm not going to say I didn't fall fall victim to that in 2021. I mean, we all kind of bought into it. I think it's some to some degree, but I think um, you know you do have to be aware of that. And I think this, you know, especially the past 18 months, has been a really good reminder to me that value really does matter when it comes to your ultimate returns. You do have to be uh, cognizant of where the stock is is trading relative to its intrinsic value. And um, you also have to be careful of when you value these companies to not let the price drive your narrative. So when things are going extremely well, it's very easy to go, well, how can we justify this price? What does it take to justify this price? And you go, oh, well, I can see that happening. I can see that stock growing, the, the sales and earnings growing 30% a year for the next 10 years. But when you go back and you look at the base rates for companies of that size that have grown at a certain rate over a certain period of time, you can see that those situations are highly unlikely. And they might be, they might have happened 1% of the time, 2% of the time in that certain reference class of hundreds of companies. And you start to ask yourself, what am I missing here? Um, and it may not, you, you may end up being right. The company may end up being exceptional and produce exceptional returns, but you can also mitigate your risk to your portfolio by position sizing that accordingly. So if if you if you have a big thesis and it, the base case you know shows your forecasted growth rate being um, 30%, 40% of the time occurring. Well, you can size that up a little bit, you know, with the by incorporating that outside view. But if but if the base rate is telling you it's a one or two percent chance of happening, you need to be cognizant of that and not put all of your money in, into that idea because you're you're, you're really rolling a, a loaded dice at that point. A hundred percent. I think that's really great way of putting it. You know, another. Uh, topic I wanted to to hit on for the last years, it really has to do with management, you know, and I think there's been a mixed bag of, you know, managers that categorically haven't performed right in the last two years, but there's at the same time, maybe some managers that are getting judged too harshly when, you know, the what's the opposite of a rising tide lifts all boats is a, a sinking ship takes, I don't know, uh, I'm the tide going out, tide going out, whatever, you know, um, and, and there's just quality managers that are, you know, still running a good quality business, but you know, they're just, their stock price is just not reflecting that. And so some investors see that like, oh, the CEO has been in, you know, been holding the reins for three years and stocks down 30, 40%, you know, but if you took a, a closer look, you still see like, okay, well, they're not burning cash, you know, they're not losing money. They're 
still even even if maybe some of their prop you know profit margins went down because of some inflation like they're still slightly profitable not giving a pass to all of all, all managers but there's definitely a few that i think have been judged unfairly as a result of just what's been a crazy two years it, it has been a crazy two years um you know especially if the company was involved in any sort of the whiplash effect from covid where there was it's a spike in demand during covid and then on the other side, you know, they, they weren't able to keep up with that demand, obviously, because we're going to a very different world from where we were in 2020 um, in terms of being able to go out and, and, and kind of engage in the economy more freely. We saw the shift from goods to services happening in the past 18 months and, and, and customers spending in a different way than they were in 2020 and 2021. And so if, if you're a company you know, trying to, you know, I, I used to, or we, we, I currently own shares of Peloton, which, you know, I have held um, down and I use it mostly as a reminder to myself that I made some mistakes with, with Peloton. And I think that was a very difficult uh, company to manage to, to their credit, like during that time, I mean, John Foley, I think his name was, was CEO and they had just this extreme demand in, in 2020. And so they had to respond by going out and getting bikes wherever they could. And they would go to China and fly them over just to meet customer demand and trying to delight their customers. And in most cases, that's exactly what you should be doing is trying to delight your customers, right? And it ended up being a terrible decision because pretty soon after we we had the um, the vaccine and people went back to the gym and demand fell off. So yeah, ask yourself, what would you do in that situation? You know, if if you didn't know at the time what your demand was going to be, but you had all this demand right now and you could ramp up very, very quickly, would you have made that choice? And I bet most people would. I mean, it's really hard to look your investors in the eye when there's that type of demand and say, you know what, we're going to hold back because, you know, we, we believe in a couple of months, things are going to return to normal. I mean, at the time, that was a, that was a crazy idea. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of managers are, are dealing with that, not just from a Peloton perspective, but, you know, other other companies, um, maybe not to that extreme, but other companies for sure. Um, so I think you need to take that into consideration. What sort of whiplash effect was there during COVID and, and post-COVID? And I know I know COVID's still with us, of course. I'm talking about the quarantines related to COVID. And the um, so I think you need to give management some, some credit. And I think if you're going to criticize management, you have to at least be able to put yourself in their shoes and say, well, here's what the decision should have been at the time, knowing what you knew, right? So there had to, if you're going to criticize, you at least have to bring something to the table. You can't just go, you know, well, yeah, they should have done that. You're know, doing a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking. Um, you should be able to understand what was the right decision? Why didn't they make that decision? And was it related to some other bias that, that led to poor decision-making? And so I think you got to cut management some slack a little bit, um, especially during the past three years. Uh, but I also think that what really matters is how management is building for the next upturn. So I look for great management teams that get stronger on and downturns and, and great companies with great cultures can, can really do that. They can uh, motivate employees. They can, they can, while their competitors in particular are starting to flail, if you're able to pick up share in the downturn, when things recover, you're in a pole position. And that's really what you you want from your management team is, is how are they, if you're in a downturn right now, how are they situating themselves to, to come out stronger on the other side? And that's really what you want if you're going to be a long-term investor rather than just guessing on cycles. If you're going to hold the company, you want it to get stronger in the down cycles and, and build momentum coming out on the other side. So that's what 
I would advise people to do uh, if they were looking at management teams and trying to figure out, um, are they making the right decisions? Are they being thoughtful capital allocators? Are they thinking about creating long-term shareholder value? Or are they just trying to maximize short-term profit and you know save their skin, so to say? You know, anecdotally, what have been some of the some? I mean, you don't have to name companies individually or anything like that. But overall, what are some examples you've seen of okay management coming out stronger from this downturn for folks that made you know they might have looked at the twenty stocks yesterday and be like, oh, one of these management that just didn't do the right thing, you know, but. Right. Maybe they're just they didn't know where to look, or they didn't have those quality, some of the uh, qualities that you've seen, and some of the ones that have been coming out stronger. So I'd love to hear your thoughts there. So uh, NVR is a company, it's a home builder that I recently added to my portfolio, my personal portfolio, and they are a home builder, like as I mentioned, and they have a differentiated business model from the rest of the home builders. They're, they only option land. So that's how they control land. Rather than buy land and develop it, which is the DNA of most home builders, they option their land. So they are able to on, only exercise that option for the land when there's demand present. Um, so they don't, they're not writing off these huge tracts of inventory and, and downturns. And their business model is they have such great net cash position. I forget exactly how much, but it's over a over billion dollars in net cash for sure. And they have, again, um, a, a tremendously asset light uh, balance sheet, and they will survive any downturn in the housing market. I mean, it's just there's, there's they, they will be the last home builder standing. And we saw that during the housing crisis of 2007, 2009, as during the financial crisis, when that, when that started in 2008, they were going out and buying land off of some of these other home builders who were struggling. They entered the Ohio market. They went down to Florida, which, I mean, with hindsight, what a great time to get into the Florida market for the first time uh, when everything was really depressed. So that's what you kind of want from your, especially in a cyclical business. You want to find management teams who are who have prepared themselves for the downturn and are able to pick up share coming out the other side. And, and NVR, I mean, if you look at their performance over the subsequent period, I mean, they're just, they've been a fantastic uh, business and uh, they have been for a long time. Absolutely. That's a great example. I mean, I don't own shares in it, but like that, that's because I was thinking when you were giving the Peloton example is like, you're right. Like if I were in, in John's shoes, I would have do, done anything I possibly can to get product in the hands of my customers that are asking for that at, at any cost, no matter what. I mean, maybe, you know, play money. Yeah. Maybe there's something you said of like, okay, well make something, you know, maybe add a mystique to it if, you know, and, slow it down and not do certain things, you know, but at the same time, when you're seeing that kind of rapid demand and growth, you kind of want to do whatever it is to try and grow your business, you know? And so I, I, while you were giving that answer, I was thinking, okay, well, what's the opposite of that? You know, what's the, op what, what, what are management teams doing that maybe they're overly conservative, you know, they're overly thinking about, you know, when not, you know, I don't think anybody in 2019 thought a COVID level event would happen, but right. now that we've experienced it now coming out of this, like, all right, our management team's now really going to be thinking more about, you know, what will happen in the event of a COVID level event were to happen again. You know, I wonder if, I wonder if management teams are maybe going to start, especially in the small micro cap. I mean, that's really where we're talking, right? Like, you know, mid, mid large. Yeah. They need to think about that too. 
but you know, in small micro, you have more hands-on managers. So they need, it's, it's much more crucial to their survival. You know, so I'm curious from your opinion, if you think more management teams will not forget what we just went through and maybe start adopting more of a conservative approach, just, just in the event, something, you know, you never know what craziness might be around the corner. Right. Yeah, I just finished Morgan Housel's new book, same as ever, and I th- I think that's probably a good yeah. a good good phrase to use uh, is that you know management teams uh, get conservative at the wrong time and get aggressive at the wrong time. That's just <laughs> the the default, right? And so, to the extent that management has earned the right to be counter cyclical with their shareholder base, I think that's a really good sign. You know, like they're like NBR, for example, again. Nobody in the shareholder base is going to be critical of them for holding too much cash <laughs> because that's that they've shown that that is the right approach to take over cycles. Um, whereas that might not be the case for other home builders in their shareholder base. They said, you know, when times are great, go buy land and get levered up and do all this, you know, uh, earnings enhancing activity. Whereas NBR has earned the right to say, you know what, we're going to take our time, and allocate capital carefully and quietly. And the same thing with Costco, right? Uh, which I also own. Uh, Costco is deliberately slow with how it rolls out stores. And you know, if you were a growth investor and you're looking at Costco and you're looking at the China opportunity, you would think just build a whole bunch of warehouses right now. Just capitalize on the opportunity. Like just build a hundred. It doesn't matter. Um, the, the demand will be there. But Costco understands its business. You know, they go slow. They build one to two a year. They expand, they get, make sure they have the supply chain in place and they have the employees in place. They have the culture in place. They want to make sure that they um, have, that they can deliver on the Costco promise with every new store versus hey, trying to just blow it out. Don't speak too soon, man. After the, the Xi Biden meeting yesterday, we're friends again, you know? Right. <laughs> I don't know. Could You could see two stores open up in Beijing tomorrow. It's yeah. possible. <laughs> but I, but I, I, I see your point. And it's, I got to read, I got to read Morgan's new book. Because it's true. I mean, Jim O'Shaughnessy was on the pod, I think, I can't even remember how long ago now. But he was saying the same thing, right? It's just having to do with human nature. You know, and but I think that's part of where the luck is involved, too. I mean, because sometimes, you know, you might get a manager that might think they're making the right decision and then it's just bad timing. Like, you know, maybe the, maybe it was the time to be really aggressive with your um, adding more stores in February 2020. You know, you had all the plans in place and you had the capital, you had the brand. It was time to go. And then, you you, you know, you just who are you to predict that uh, the world was going to shut down for six months? You know, like that's also probably part of it as well. Cause on one hand it's like, yeah, I I'm sure there's some kind of percentage in the book that says like about managers that are do the wrong thing at the wrong time. But sometimes it's just, it's just part of my French, but shit luck. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a really difficult job to run any public company for sure. Um, There's a lot of pressure on you. From not just shareholders, but the the board in some cases, your customers, suppliers, you know, the buck stops with you and you have to make tough decisions and they're not always crystal clear. I mean, even as an investor, you can, you can um, appreciate that where it's not always a, a 90%, a 90, 10 proposition. It's usually 60, 40 and you're, you're making a tough call and sometimes you, you're, you're wrong and sometimes you're right. And I think you, what you want to look for is, is thoughtfulness. 
You know, I think some of the the great investors, every great investor has made bad decisions. I mean, even Buffett, there's a whole book I have on my bookshelf here about all the mistakes that Buffett did. And so, you know, it, what matters though, is that it's, it was a thoughtful decision that just had bad luck. Um, in some cases, sometimes the process is bad, but the important thing is that it, it was a thoughtful approach and that you, that you, you took your, took your time and also explained to your stakeholders what you're thinking. It's not, I think the, the worst thing you can see from a manager is after a bad decision, they get super defensive and say, no, no, no. Like you, totally. if you, if you believed in us before, you should believe in us now, all this kind of thing, you know, give us the merits of the investment. Why did you make it? What was the thought process? What was your exit strategy? If it doesn't work out, these are things that you, that you want to hear. You don't want to hear management digging their heels and go, well, you guys just don't believe in us and you can always sell the stock if you don't like it. I mean, that's not what you want to hear. You know, you want to be, especially if you are the right, I'll say quote, the right type of shareholder, which a management team should want, which is a long-term partner and not someone who's going to be popping in and popping out of the stock. You want to find someone you can partner with who stands by your vision um, for the company and, and wants to ride along with you. And so if management's dismissive of that type of shareholder, you have to really question what they're doing. Is, are they really there to be a steward of shareholder capital or are they just trying to increase their own wealth? Talk to a lot of management teams, uh, especially in the last, you know, I, I mean, since I began my career in 2011, but especially in the last three years, there's been a few and it's, and they're not bad managers by any means, but there's the, I can also understand their frustration too, right? Sure. Of just like, they may have publicly talked, outlined their exit strategy if something doesn't work out. And if, People just keep hounding them for, you know, or stakeholders or potential stakeholders keep hounding like, well, when's this going to, you know, like I, I've had those, you know, off the record conversations with some managing teams where they're just like, just sell the effing stock and right. like, just put me out of my misery, man. Like, I don't, right. I, I don't need, I don't need you to hound me every week about whether or not this plan is, is, is on its pathway to being executed, you know? Yeah. I think it's, um, it's different in the small cap world from the large cap world in terms of accessibility to management. Yeah. And I also think when you're when you're talking with management teams of mid to large cap companies, you're typically dealing with the lieutenant versus the CEO. And because they have other, you know, people that they need to talk to. And I think it's um uh sometimes you it, it can be difficult to get a straight answer from IR because they've been kind of filtered down. So I, I sometimes the brutal honesty is is better, I guess. But um it, it's it your job as an investor, whether large cap or, or small cap, is is to really do the work and try to get at what you think actually happened and what you think is is real. And, and honestly, if you can't trust management, you shouldn't be invested in the stock. I mean, if you if you wake up at night wondering what they're going to do the next day, <laughs> that's not what you want. I mean, as an investor, it's much easier to sleep at night when you know that the people running the show have the best interests of shareholders, employees, and all their stakeholders in mind and creating value for the long-term. You know, I was, I was just on a, a recent podcast talking about the book Lessons from the Titans. And they we talked about Dave Cote, who was a CEO of Honeywell, former CEO. And he had a great quote from the book that they, that they heard from him say when, so the guys who wrote the book were analysts and they followed industrial companies for a long time. And they remember talking to Dave Cote, who said, I want to make money in the stock 10 years after I retire. And he didn't say that towards the end of his career. He said that in the beginning of his career, of his, I think it was 12 or 15 year tenure at Honeywell. 
So with he had that mindset going in that it wasn't just about him maximizing his stock price and his his wealth over the next three years. It was about doing something great for this business. And it's much, much easier to sleep as an investor when you have someone like that at the helm who is a steward, who sees themselves as a steward and um, wants everyone to, to benefit and not just themselves. That is such a good story. And I actually, I anecdotally had a call yesterday or was it yesterday? Or maybe two days ago. Yeah, it was two days ago with the CEO that I'm quite close with, the microcap CEO. And, you know, he even straight up said, he's like, you know, there's a group of us CEOs that talk all the time. And, you know, they asked me, like, what what are you doing? Like, what's what what are you doing to mitigate or or just deal with these markets? And he literally is like, I'm head down, I'm working. I the stock price will take care of itself if I execute right now. So right. I there's no point in me just you know getting caught up in all the hoopla. You know, I, I think we've banned C. I, I, he didn't actually say this, but I, I would I would imagine he banned CNBC from the <laughs> from the office. Right. You know, just just head down, focus on the work, right? Because I mean, especially in small microcap land, for the most part, especially if you're running a profitable business or even a revenue generating business, commercial business, you know that's. At the end of the day, that's that's all you can really focus on. I mean, if you if you're still pre-rev, I mean, okay, yeah, you do kind of have to pay attention a little more. You got to engage capital markets a bit more actively, especially right now. Um, but profitable, even slightly revenue generating, near-term profitable. Like the only thing you can do right now is really just head down, focus. Don't don't pay attention to the noise. It's kind of the same thing you would tell any investor that maybe is in the long term for some of their stories, right? It's just just head down, do your work, don't don't pay attention to the outside noise. Yeah, I think um, you know, there's two components of your returns as an investor. You know, the earnings growth and the multiple, which is basically sentiment. You can't control the sentiment. The market will that that's based on the macro, it's based on interest rates, it's based on just the different emotional cycle of investors at the time. What you can control is the earnings growth over the next five, 10 years. And that requires you to just execute on the business. I mean, you can't predict what your earnings are going to be, but what you can do is create value for your customers, create value for your suppliers. And ultimately that will turn into, if executed properly, revenue growth, earnings growth. Eventually the market takes notice. And it's very easy for me to say that um, from the outside, but you know, on the inside, it's different, different pressures. There's, you know, bonuses that depend on where the stock price is or where earnings is in a given year. And so I think, um, but, but that that's really ultimately what, what you should be focused on as a manager is just creating value and let the market figure out the rest. That's all you can do. Absolutely. So I wanted to go into two posts of yours that you've made recently um, that as I was, as we were going through like where we're at right now in the markets, like I said, we're recording this on Thursday, November 16th. You know, you literally 10 minutes before we got on published your recent post conviction, arrogance, indispensable or both. And it, it, and I, I quickly went through it and it reminded me a little bit of another post that you put out on September 18, 2023 about letting go, like why selling is so hard to do. And one, the overarching thing as, and this is kind of funny, is that like, it's kind of close to that Q3 it's in Q3 time period where traditionally, as I said earlier, like this is, it's normally just the worst quarter for mm -hmm. almost every 
especially in small micro caps, it's traditionally a terrible quarter, you know, in terms of earnings and stuff like that. So it's kind of appropriate that these two posts come out in Q3. It's like, all right, why selling is so hard to do for an idea that you probably have done so much work on. And then the conviction to hold through what is typically a shit quarter <laughs> for right. any of your ideas. So right. I just thought that was kind of funny. I like both these posts during this time just makes so much sense to come. And then, and you know, of course, then it also, yeah. So like, just love to get more of your thoughts on that because like we said, it's a, it's a typically shit quarter and already a shit two years. I apologize to anybody listening that is under 18. I've been saying shit a lot, so I apologize, <laughs> but you know, how do we think through these two ideas of like why selling is so hard to do as well as trying to have that same conviction for an idea that you know is going to work, but dang, it's friggin' hard to push through right now. Yeah. I think starting with the, the, the conviction side, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Professor Demoterin from NYU had a comment with on his uh, podcast with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. I think the first one where he said, you know, I equate conviction with arrogance. And, and arrogance is, is, I'm paraphrasing here, but danger, arrogance is dangerous and you should diversify. And on the other hand, you had Seth Klarman in 1996 shareholder letter at Balpost saying, investing is arrogance. That's what you do. So what are we doing here if we're not being arrogant? I mean, if you're an active investor, you are taking an arrogant act because you're saying that what I, what I believe is different from everybody else. And guess what? I'm right. And so how do you balance that between um, your, your, your confidence, which you need to have, you need to be confident. Otherwise you won't actually make an investment in the first place. You'll just say, Oh, I guess just, I don't know. I, I you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's 60, 40, but I just, I can't get my, my confidence in the 60 part to you know, where I want to pull the trigger and invest. And, and, but you need that, you need that confidence, but where it gets dangerous is when it crosses over to your intellectual humility. When you take that inner confidence and take it to the intellectual side, that's where bad things can happen where, you know, if someone critiques your thesis, it, you blow up, right. And you go, that's wrong. Like you're, you're wrong. Like you're this, you're that becomes ad hominem attacks. Just you're not responding rationally and calmly. And your job is to defend the thesis, not yourself. And that's, that, that's hard to separate sometimes for investors. I know I, I've done that before where I've, I've taken criticisms personally, and it's not, that's usually a sign that things aren't, what I expect. I'm, I'm blinded somehow. I've somehow taken too much of an inside view. I think that's one of the, one of the dangers of uh, spending a lot of time on individual companies is once you get the thesis going and you have that sunk cost, right. Of all that research time you've done, you know, to find disconfirming evidence is painful. Like I just spent two years of my life researching this company and here's this information it could be critical, but you know what? I just, I don't want to let it in my system. Otherwise, you know, what was this all for? So all these, all these thoughts go in your head when you're investing. And so I think you really have to be cognizant of your own biases and your own behaviors in certain situations. And that comes with time. I wrote a piece about you know, the one investing trait to rule them all and it's discernment. And that only comes with time and experience. You know, I, here's how I respond in certain situations, um, why do I respond that way? Um, there's always a balance between, um, you know, humility and arrogance. You know, if you're too humble, you won't actually invest, and you should just diversify. If you're too arrogant, you'll overconcentrate and you'll blow yourself up. So you don't want to, you know, be on either extreme. You want to be somewhere in the middle, and that's really where the successful investing happens: is the ability to go. You know what? You're right. I was. That's that's a that's a really good point. I didn't think about it that way, and now that I do think about it 
this company is not as good as I thought it was, and I'll need to maybe trim the position or, or rethink it or or take a take a fresh look at it or something. Um, so I think that's that, that's the conviction side of it. Um, selling is you know it's it's the least fun part of the job because there's even if you sell at a, at a game and you you know do a victory lap. It's painful when that stock goes on to double again <laughs> and triple, and you know. But you also don't want the stock to crash after you you sell it because then you're thinking, well, did I just get lucky? So selling is just not fun to do at all in in investing. And I think it really, you really comes back to having a discipline around your balancing your conviction and an idea and what the value opportunity is. And those are the two things that I think should drive your position sizing. And that's something um, that I think most investors don't think about enough is the gray area between owning something and not owning something. So a lot of times people lose conviction and they just sell the whole stock. Well, not necessarily a good idea because if you sell it um, because the stock reached your fair value or something and you sell out of it completely, but you really believe in the business, if it gets off your radar and gets off your books, you're probably not going to look at it again for a while. And then you're going to be anchored into what, what you had before. And you can go, well, I'm not going to pay that price or I'm not going to do this. And you, so you're not thinking clearly. And I think um, if you have ad- identified what you believe to be an exceptional business and it's just too expensive, sell it down to maybe just a little bit in your portfolio, just so you continue to own a little bit of it. You're, it's on your radar. You're thinking about it. Um, I've had that happen plenty of times where I've, I've exited a position haven't thought about it. And the stock went on to the three or four X or something like that, right? Just lost complete, you know, you only have so many stocks you can hold in your mind at a given time. You know, I, I like to say my, my rule of thumb is an individual investor or even a professional investor who's doing this full time. Um, you can hold about 20 to 25 companies in your head at any given time at, at a certain level of depth, it, what I would consider a necessary level of depth. Um, but you know, beyond that, it's, it's, it's really hard to stay focused on, on any company. So if you have 20 or so companies in your portfolio, if you sell one of them, another one took its place and your, 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 your brain is not even thinking about that name anymore. So I think there are different ways you can think about on the selling side, um, how to, to respond, um, to different events with a company where it's not just, I'm selling out of it, I'm continuing to hold it just at a smaller piece, um, or, different different ways to think about selling versus the traditional kind of well i'm just going to sell it when it hits fair value and that's it um move on like that's that works for value like what i would call just traditional value investing is it's a cigar but you buy a dollar 50 cents you sell when it hits a dollar but when you're investing in great companies great companies tend to create value over time so that dollar then becomes a dollar ten dollar twenty dollar thirty and so you're kind of constantly chasing that intrinsic value uh, increasing over time and so I think you have to really know what you're investing in and, and why you're investing in. If you're making a value investment and you're, you're you know, doing an asset play or something, yeah, you sell when you're about fair value, but then you've got to find another idea. So it's it all comes back to knowing what your approach is, what you're comfortable with, and, and what, your, what your discipline is. Okay. I think I'm going to social clip everything that you just said there because that was that was phenomenal. I mean, I, I don't really have a follow-up to it because at the end of the day, like everything, I co-sign everything that you just said, having to do with conviction, having to do with sell, especially with selling. Like, it's just, it really doesn't. You're right. It doesn't feel good. I, right. I mean, maybe, well, made a lot of money. Maybe it might feel a little good. But then yeah. you're still thinking like, oh, freaking capital gains. I'm going to have to pay. Like, I hope I have a loser in there that I could sell to mm-hmm. offset that, right? Um, 
but yeah, wow, that was we covered a lot there. So you know what? I think I, that was most of my questions that I have for you today. We covered pretty much all your recent posts and everything like that. I hope everybody listening today heard, you know, why you should probably go and check out flyover stocks at, on Substack and uh, all the great insights that Todd is sharing with us. You know, so Todd, before I let you go here, you know, like I said, we're mid-November 2023, pretty much. I mean, we're pretty much at that. We'll circle back after the holidays point of 2023, you know, so kind of final thoughts on 2023 as a whole. And then how are you thinking about just, markets in general or any certain th- any macro things that you're thinking about and how that relates to you know potential new ideas or even core holdings as we go into 2024 yeah i think i've um there's a lot of good opportunities right now i think outside of the magnificent seven so to say you know the stocks that are carrying the market you know if you look strip those out the market isn't that remarkable right now and the companies are still continuing to drive earnings growth and I think you have a decent number of coiled springs out there where these stocks are continuing to build earnings into a flat share price. And so you're looking at a lot of stocks trading with 13 to 17 times PEs for the first time in a couple of years. And I also wrote a post about um, Buffett's aim small, miss small approach. And it's he, it goes back to that formula that he shared um, or they shared, I think it was Ted Weschler, maybe it was Todd Combs. Um, sharing that you know, when they talk with Buffett, it's what stocks in the S and P 500 are going to be trading for 15 times PE. Um, which which companies do you have 90% confidence in over the next five years that they'll have at least the same earnings growth uh, or same earnings? And then uh, what's a 70% confidence level that they'll be able to grow that at 7% CAGR? And if you do that, you can start to see opportunities in in the in the space. Now that requires a lot of qualitative judgment. You can't just say, "Oh, well, this stock has done this over the past; it will do it in the future." You have to understand the economic moat, management teams, et cetera. But if you find a company that um, has coming off of, well, say, maybe a mid-cycle year, um, and you're looking out five to seven years, and you think they can grow their earnings over the next five to seven years um, with with a certain level of confidence, then you should take a look at it because there's 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 more opportunities right now than, than I can remember. Um, I know the market's been up a couple of days this past week, um, but... I've I've been finding plenty of interesting ideas for to potentially profile and flyover stocks, and so I see that as usually a good sign that there's good fishing out there. Hundred percent. Well, Todd, that's a great place to end it. Where can our audience go and find more information about flyover stocks, as well as follow you on social media? Sure, flyover stocks is flyoverstocks.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter or Threads at Todd Winning. Um, my messages are open, so you're always welcome to send me a note. Very cool. Well, Todd, thank you so much for joining me today. Really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. And I look forward to our next update. All right. Thanks, Bobby. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast podcast.